Welcome everyone to In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Henriquez, a commercial litigator with Wombleban Dickinson, and today we have a special episode for you recorded in Washington, D.C. at the Association of Corporate Counsel's annual conference. We recorded several episodes at the conference, and I think they are some of the best conversations we've had to date. Longtime listeners may notice that the audio isn't quite as good as we typically produce. We used our travel equipment, so please forgive any technical issues. I have two guests with me today. Ryan Brown is Corporate Counsel for Global Operations for Rosetta Stone, and also Robert Phillips from Bond Dickinson is here as well. Uh, We're going to be talking about international employment-related issues for international companies dealing with labor and employment laws across a bunch of different jurisdictions, and we may get into other general topics of a global nature for all of our listeners that have operations that are international. Um, Ryan, I think, can provide some good insight into some of the challenges that deal with that international scope. Ryan, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. Ryan, can you just tell us, our audience, a little bit about yourself? We were talking before we started recording about some of the interesting background you've got in the education space and in intellectual property. Tell us a little bit about how you, what you did before you came to Rosetta Stone and what you're doing with them now. Sure. You know, as corporate counsel, uh, uh, you end up kind of wearing multiple hats, and, and that's very true for me. Um, so I tend to assist the company on our international labor and employment issues, as well as uh, corporate transactions. I work in the education law space, uh, oftentimes as we do business with educational institutions frequently, um, including through our subsidiary, Alexia Learning out of Boston, which focuses on literacy instead of for uh, world languages. And even before that, I worked for another education company, education technology called K-12 Inc., which is also based here in Herndon. And before that, I was with American Education Corporation, where I was also their director of HR, because it was a very uh, small company. And that's kind of where I cut my teeth on employment issues, which have been interesting and near and dear to my heart, because it's one thing that always changes, and always keeps up to date, and companies always need, certainly, uh, timely advice on those issues. So that's sort of a quick uh, update on me. (laughs) Great. No, I appreciate it. And Robert, thank you for joining us. As those of you that listen to the podcast regularly know, uh, Womble Carlisle has announced a combination uh, with Bond Dickinson. Bond Dickinson is a large firm with eight offices throughout the United Kingdom. We're really thrilled to be joining with them as we try to serve our clients on an international scope. Robert, you want to tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I've been, uh, I'm a corporate M&A lawyer. I've been uh, working in that area of the law for 25 years. I wish it was less long, but it's uh, 25 short years. I worked, uh, trained initially with a firm in the City of London, uh, so city law expertise and practice, and then I've worked in a regional practice uh, in Newcastle, which is going to be the, uh, well, it is the biggest of the Bond Dickinson practice areas, and it'll continue to be the biggest single office for the Womble Bond Dickinson combined business. So I've seen the kind of city practice, I've seen uh, regional practice, and over the last few months I've been fortunate enough to work with future colleagues at Womble Carlisle on a couple of transatlantic and international transactions. So hopefully be able to add to some of what uh, Ryan's going to talk about later. Great. 
No, thank you very much. Oh, I appreciate both of you, uh, both of you being here. Uh, before we dive into the topic, I think I'd like to talk a little bit about Rosetta Stone. Certainly, the name that comes to mind when we think about um, how to learn languages and kind of that whole language education. Um, it looks like the company was founded back in 1992 and then became a New York Stock Exchange listed company in 2009. And obviously, has really got a, a global base. And I understand moving to some of a cloud-based business too. Can you tell us a little bit about Rosetta Stone as a company before we dig into some of the issues, Ryan? Sure, I'm happy to. And with disclaimer that my thoughts and opinions are often uh, my <laughs> own and not my company's, so a very loyally disclaimer to start. But <laughs> I, I can speak briefly about Rosetta Stone. Uh, you know, we're very proud of our brand and reaching out to users really across the world and across different scopes of uh, learning um, from individual people trying to empower themselves through a new world language, through um, students trying to find ways to enhance and, and learn faster and, and better uh, world languages. And also through our subsidiary Le Lexia Learning, which has been very active in the US literacy market in learning uh, and assisting students and teachers in developing the literacy skills and capabilities and assessing those. And so, you know, we're very proud of our brand and what we bring to it. And as you mentioned, we've gone through a number of changes as a number of uh, other companies are. I'll, I'll let you go to the uh, SEC filings for all the messy details, <laughs> um, but in short, we have transitioned, like many other companies, to a, a SaaS-based model, based often in the cloud, uh, depending on which product we're talking about. And like those, we have also started to focus on what we're, as a company, we view as our main strengths, which are providing high-quality language uh, learning products. And we find a number of clients at governments, uh, government agencies, such mm -hmm. as the State Department and the White House and those of other countries, as well as large educational institutions. And so that has really been something that we find that we can deliver a unique value to and what we focused on. And so part of my role as an attorney is making those things happen, advising our, our internal stakeholders. And as I said, part of being an operations attorney is you try to get things things and people from point A to point B around the world. Gotcha. No, that's great. And it seems like a, you know, a critical time as the world shrinks, as we get more international business, as we get more international movement, you know, the ability to learn those other languages and do it in a way wherever you're located seems like a, a you know, kind of a critical, yeah. critical thing. That sounds good. Well, today I thought we would, as this podcast always tries to share some tips for general counsel out there, and I know you've done a fair amount in the labor and employment area, so I wanted to kind of talk about tips dealing with the labor and employment, particularly as it relates to international work. I thought maybe we'd talk a little bit first about the legal management side of labor and employment. I know you've got to be simultaneously looking at the big picture where the company's going, but also dealing with discrete fires as they occur with, you know, particularly on the employment side where you have someone that um, needs to be terminated, needs to be disciplined. I guess, how do you manage that and what tips can you give to other GCs out there that often, labor and employment is often one of many hats that they're wearing in my experience where I've gotten a call and there's a claim of sexual harassment or discrimination or improper conduct, you know, how do I deal with that? And a lot of these folks don't have a real labor and employment background. So what What's, what are your thoughts on how to help manage that? Goodness, there's a, it's a very broad topic, and I think there are many <laughs> sessions here that are an hour plus long on that very topic, but I'll try to offer what I can in a, an encapsulated uh, yeah. portion. So much of an in-house counsel's um, job is, is, as you said, firefighting, right? I don't know what on a daily basis I'm walking into. It could be you know, the current crisis du jour. And so I think 
good corporate counsel know how to fire a fight effectively, but great corporate counsel are able to kind of see around the bend and prepare the company for what's coming. You know, what is going to be the crisis next week, next month, uh, next year, even, even beyond that. And so to that extent, certainly the current crises these days are over data, right? Yeah. Both employee data, particularly in the European Union, we find that to be very tricky as the European Union adopts the GDPR and moves on to other data regimes, but also as the United States, where we're based, adopts their own data regime. And China right now, the People's Congress, I believe, is meeting this week. And one of the things we're watching very carefully, as I'm sure many other companies are, are what data rules come out of there. I think they're looking at adopting a very GDPR style mm -hmm. data regime. And so those are some of the things that from a strategic perspective we look at uh, because it does affect how not only you store your clients' data, but also how you store your own employees' data. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great, you know, you talked about not just dealing with the fires, looking ahead. Do you have any tips on how to, how to manage that balance? In other words, how, how do you pay attention to the three calls and emails that are on your plate while also figuring out what's coming down the road? Because I know a lot of GCs, that's a constant battle. Right. How, how do you manage that? that you know, um, I think one of the best practices now is that, as a, and I'm speaking sort of as a global company, mm -hmm. uh, there's this tendency for companies that are far flung around the world like we are, big ones, small ones like us, to centralize all of their policy and decision making in their corporate headquarters, which inevitably is in one country, yeah. right? For us, it's the United States. So uh, we have to acknowledge that we have this US-centric bias and manage for that. And when I say that, I find one of the ways to being able to do this effectively is enabling, from an employment perspective, enabling your local uh, HR folks as well as your local counsel in the individual jurisdictions that you're doing business mm -hmm. in to really make those decision making, right? And sort of flow from the decentralized parts of your company up towards the HQ and this sort of consultative process, right? You don't want the tail wagging the dog, mm -hmm. but at the same time, you don't want one US-based policy, you know, disrupting or, or violating law at worst, you know, your labor and employment policies around the world in many other jurisdictions. Yeah. And so I find having good trusted local counsel on the ground and the companies that you work with or in-house counsel or best both mm. uh, for the different issues that come up as well as really leaning on your local HR and their, their knowledge. That's great. Does Rosetta Stone have company-wide policies and how, how do you just or end regional policies on the employment mm -hmm. front and how do you decide kind of how much to, to make regional and how much to make national, given what you just said about, you know, the importance of not trying to have a one-size-fits-all. I guess, how do you, but it seems challenging if I'm the person in the UK and mm -hmm. I've got some policies that are tailored there, who, who handles that integration between, okay, here's the UK HR policy, right. how does this relate to the company-wide HR policy on a particular issue, whether it's family leave or or privacy or whatever. It's a good question because they're actually quite it's quite different. So in the UK we've been working with and have worked with some US businesses that are and maybe we could talk about this later, looking to expand into the UK and potentially Europe. And we've been talking to some HR directors in the US and trying to explain to them some of the basics of you know, if if, if you have not been in the UK previously, the regime is is quite different, um, quite different. Uh, and, and so trying to get a one-size-fits-all won't, won't fit all so I'm interested to hear that you're, how, you're, how you're 
how your kind of derogation, if you like, from the core principles works on a national basis? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll attempt to answer it as best I can. The answer is it, it's messy, yeah. right? Um, it is. <laughs> because so many Come on, these... Robert and I agree it's a hard problem. Now you're going to solve it for our listeners, right, Ryan? <laughs> no, you know, in, in the United States, we have one of the most uh, employer-friendly um, sets of laws, from, right, yeah. from leave uh, to termination at will. We have a very, very employer-friendly set of policy, and that's not how the rest of the world does business, not even including in the first world, right? Including in otherwise capitalist nations such as the United Kingdom or Canada. Uh, it's a very different employment regime. And so I think that one way that we try to solve it is we create kind of a national, a centralized ideal, right? Let's say we want flexible working hours, right? We okay. want a very generous leave policy. Uh, in the United States, our company has developed, um, frankly, a... a um, some have called it unlimited vacation, but the very lawyerly way of saying it is, you know, vacation on approval by your manager. And so one of our tasks is how do you really decentralize that elsewhere? And really, there's no way around it. You have to go and understand the laws of the individual nations you're working with. And as I mentioned previously, that just means building partnerships with great HR practitioners uh, in your company and outside uh, in the local offices, as well as, again, local counsel and your local in-house counsel that may specialize that in there. Because implementing this law in China looks very different from uh, implementing the, the corporate-wide goal of a flexible leave policy looks very different in the United States than it does in China and than it does in the United Kingdom. And so it often frustrates um, your executives when you can't create yeah. the centralized process. But if you can get them to focus on the, the main core principle that you're trying to, yeah. to build in your workforce internationally, you can execute it to the best of your abilities and, you know, on the local laws of the various jurisdictions. I think that's a great tip because I think instead, I think we tend to think as lawyers of, okay, our policy, you know, means leave in this many days and kind of in that more right. granular sense. Like, and I think what I hear you saying is the company may be able to set kind of broad <laughs> policy goals, yes. but that may look very different in all the different places we're doing business. So we have a philosophy and that will make guide the, the policy, but we can't do a, the policy can't be that granular because it's not going to fit. I but, think if you, if you accept you can't do it, and that's the kind of first thing you have to do, isn't it? You have to kind of say, we can't have one size fit all. So once we've accepted that, then what I hear you saying is that it's about having the trusted relationships with your in-house local council and then your external council. If they're good enough relationships, then you can trust them to get it just about right enough <laughs> that you don't end up with too many rabbits off, uh, as we would say. And it's, it's a bit like herding cats because you, yes. you can't actually do that. So <laughs> why try? I, I'm, I'm speaking uh, actually tomorrow on a, on a very similar topic on conducting a reductions in force, which is a nice way of laying people off mm. <laughs> uh, and shuttering you know, certain offices that you may not make sense for the business at the time. And it's a perfect illustration, I think, of what we're talking about here. You know, the company at its centralized headquarters or the board of directors or senior executives has said, we need to remake the way we look at, at we conduct our business internationally we need to shut down certain offices we need to outsource if you will certain you know, departments and being a global company that cuts across many jurisdictions and so that's the overarching goal right the executive set the goal i need to shutter these things i need to lay off these employees but the execution of that goal which is where corporate counsel really can drive value is achieving that goal but understanding that it's going to be achieved through local means mm. and local partnerships and your your local relationships need to feel comfortable enough with you that they can say to you, well, you we can't do that. Yes. 
uh, because sometimes they might be thinking they're saying well we've got to do this we've got to do this and actually that isn't possible under the local laws and if they try and do it that what they end up with is that is a poison pill further down the line so right. if we so you know ryan's telling us we've got to do this we've got to do this you don't you try and do it and in fact what you end up with is a problem down the line but if they can tell you we can't do it that way we recommend we do it this way then you end up with less stored up problems yeah, from a corporate accounts perspective, I, I agree with everything you said, Robert, yeah. which is, um, uh, and I would add to that, often our role is to quantify risk, right, which is sometimes easier said than done. Yeah. One way that I present it to our senior stakeholders is, you know, okay, if you do it this way, it's going to cost us X in terms of litigation, in terms of regulatory actions from foreign jurisdictions that don't like plan A. Mm-hmm. Plan B may be more expensive in yeah. time and money, uh, but we will face less regulatory action, less likelihood of mm-hmm. litigation. And you try as best as possible to quantify those things through outside counsel costs, through um, regulatory fines costs, predicted amounts. Um, and, and that's one way I think you can present that. Okay, that's good. Since we've got you here, Robert, and I know Rosetta Stone has offices in London, I, I think we can't talk about some of this international stuff without at least bringing up the topic of Brexit and yes. what's that, what's that going to mean? What's, what's, yeah, what is Brexit? Yeah, so you, you don't, you, yeah, I, I know our, our listeners may have heard of that because we've talked about it well, on a few other podcasts. But yeah. actually, since since I've got Robert here, you, you want to go ahead and give us a brief discussion in case someone has been living under a rock and doesn't know what Brexit is. But and more importantly, I guess, you know, everyone, oh my God, there's Brexit. But I, I think less people understand what is it really going to mean in terms of kind of maybe timetable. And we, we don't need to go into a great deal of okay. impact, but maybe a brief overview on what's happening now with Brexit. And then let's talk about any implications for the hire, you know, having people in the UK, workforce in the UK, and what, how that may change uh, as a result of Brexit. Okay, so um, Brexit is happening, apparently. Uh, our politicians uh, and European politicians are talking about it all the time but um, there doesn't seem to be much actually happening. The UK government is having a monthly get together with uh, its European counterparts um, which as at this week are officially stalemated. We're trying to agree the cost of a uh, divorce bill uh, which is the costs um, that allegedly the UK is committed to as part of its relationship with Europe and you have... you before Europe will talk to the UK about what its future trading relationship is going to be. Um, so it's interesting as a, as a corporate lawyer to be looking at the dynamic of how these so-called mature governments are actually approaching <laughs> what is uh, an enormously important negotiation that will affect millions of businesses and millions of people. For me, it looks pretty immature. It looks like poor negotiation because the thing that they're all up against is a deadline, a clock that's ticking. In theory, um, the UK will leave the European Union in March 2019. But if you look at what has to be achieved between uh, now and then, we really are not making much progress. So um, we're in negotiations, not much is happening. There is an enormous amount that has to be agreed uh, before then. Money is on uh, what's now being called a transitionary period where we, uh, the UK, will notionally leave the uh, EU in March 2019, but it won't actually leave in March 2019. There'll be a range of options from March 2019, uh, ranging from nothing will change um, through to a large a number of things will change, but not everything will change. Um, but the smart money's on, there's still being continued negotiations three or four years after um, mm. 2019. 
Wow. And what is, as, as someone that has business operations there in London, what does Brexit mean and kind of this uncertainty about Brexit mean for Rosetta Stone and for the legal department dealing with these things? Sure. Um, you know, I think you hit the uh, nail on the head with the uncertainty part. And business, broadly speaking, can handle all kinds of negative news uh, and they can handle it well, right? But business has real trouble handling uncertainty and that's what we don't know. We don't know what the tax profile is going to look like working in the United Kingdom. We don't know what the employment um, regulations are. That's a little bit more predictable, I think. Um, but. Uh, from an employment perspective, the immigration, right? For us, we have a number of employees that may not be in the London office, but they operate throughout the European Union. Mm -hmm. And so what is that going to look at? Getting someone from point A to point B. Are we going to need visas? Are we going to need, um, you know, uh, every time you enter the country? Uh, what is that going to look like? And so part of getting people and things across border is very easy right now. And so we're looking at how that's going to be difficult, both from operating a business and from um, doing business from a trading perspective uh, there. Are, and forgive me, I'm just not sure the answer, does the EU, for example, are, does it have its own set of labor laws that apply to everybody, including the UK, and will that change as a result of Brexit? Things in terms of leave or overtime or things of that nature? What, what, George, what's George, what's George, the regulatory? Yeah, go ahead, I mean, Robert. So, let, so um, with my, my legal caveat is that uh, I'm an M&A lawyer, not a labor relations uh, employment lawyer, but the um, my understanding is that what is going to happen is that we're going to have have our great reform bill which now has a different name but what it's basically we are just about to finalize a law which will effectively mean that all current European law that has effect in the UK will become UK law some people think that and then there's, there's a kind of a little get out of jail clause with that as well which some politicians don't like so up to a point the law that is in the UK which has come from Europe will remain until such time as the UK legislative process gets round to changing it, and you know, going back to all the discussions that we used to ha that we were having when this was or was not going to happen, when people were voting on Brexit, a lot of um, received wisdom was that a lot of the objection to imposed legislation was completely irrational because a lot of the legislation that we had we would probably keep anyway and a lot of the rights for employees and obligations on employers would probably re be retained. So in the short term I think nothing much will change um, and that those EU nationals who are currently living in the UK will be allowed to stay although they're going to have to they're going to be asked to make a, a kind of a new application but they'll effectively be passported through uh, to be able to stay. Just go back to one of Ryan's other points so around uncertainty. So the intellectual property law, which will obviously um, will impact on Rosetta in terms of a lot of what, what it does, juries out really on, on how that will change as well, because at the minute we have a kind of a UK regime and we have a European regime, and those two kind of overlap uh, and coexist. Don't know what's going to happen um, at mm. the minute with um, intellectual property law. That, in right. fact, might change more than the labour law. Mm. Well, that's, that's an interesting point, I think, on the change of intellectual property law. We touched very briefly on the data protection mm. issues. Uncertainty is the challenge. Mm. I guess, how do you, in terms of the legal department trying to predict what those rules would be, or at least position your company to deal with those? Do you have tips for other GCs that are going through the same thing that Rosetta Stone is going through in looking ahead and trying to figure out how you're going to deal with that uncertainty? What, what, how have you approached it, and what tips would you give to your fellow GCs that have similar issues? 
Uh, the old joke is look at Dublin, look at property in Dublin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a, it's mm-hmm. a similar uh, culture and business um, and employment law realm as the UK, and they speak English as yeah. well as. Uh, so uh, we joke about that. Um, in reality, in terms of preparation, there's only a limited amount you can do until we have hard answers. So in the short term, I mean, read the news, right? Like mm-hmm. stay up on news. I read the, uh, even though I'm an American, I read the Telegraph uh, daily, as well as a smattering of other UK publications. And I read the reports from firms like yours, Robert, and, yeah. and just to kind of understand what the latest thought is. Yeah. And so when you start building operations, these are things that are now starting to affect our decision-making, right? Mm-hmm. And not just my company's decision-making, but decision-making uh, with any company that uh, has operations in the EU. And that is, do you move this person to this office? Do you hire this new strategic executive in the UK? Do you hire them in the United States? Do you hire them in somewhere else? You know, mm. should we open up an office in Dub- you know, Dublin or, or somewhere else in the EU? Should we shift operations there and start hiring there? You know, where do you want the nexus of sales in the EU? So these are a number of the decisions that uh, really any company that they're going through now. So I wish I had better tips, but following the news very carefully. And I think many companies are just hedging their bets and not making these decisions until we know more. So... I wouldn't put more into the UK right now mm-hmm. um, unless we were reassured as to what the tax profile is going to look like and what the immigration profile is going to look at from the EU perspective. Gotcha. Yeah, and you, you mentioned immigration a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's been uh, uh, re-looking at some of the immigration policies here in the United States, and I imagine there's complicated immigration issues as you go multinational with all the different locations. I mean, is there, right now for an employer, is there a easiest or best place to have a employee nominally based? I mean, because a lot of your employees, I imagine, travel, right? I mean, they may cover areas that include multiple countries, you know, regional people that are that are doing things, is there a thought about, from a company perspective, where the best place to put people is? And, and how do you balance that with other interests about where the employees may want to live or be based? No, absolutely. And I think you hit on, um, again, a very timely topic. And I think we're in a very interesting place as a global business community right now, which is we see domestically, and not just in the United States, but in the United Kingdom and many other countries in the world, sort of this retrenching, right? There's this political retrenching where uh, folks are less in favor of immigration policies, uh, I don't want to call it open immigration, but more flexible immigration policies than they were through multiple countries. And so at the same time, you see business being increasingly global and increasingly decentralized through cloud computing. I mean, the servers are all over, the offices all over. You can, you know, uh, we have people with single person, you know, that work out of their home that can telecommute via video conferencing. And so at the same time that you see business becoming more global and decentralized, you see a lot of the national immigration policies sort of retrenching back. And so getting people from point A to point B uh, and doing business, right? Not just for your own employees, but also business associates, people that are coming from, let's say, India, right, that come to the United States for a business meeting, right? You have to li- write a letter to Homeland Security and have them be able to present all these things at the border that they're bona fide, um, you know, doing bona fide business on behalf of our company and uh, please admit them uh, to this business meeting. And so I think that the compliance costs for a lot of companies are going to run full head onto these changing policies in the United States and elsewhere. Wow. I think that's, I had not thought of that. Yeah. 
dynamic the way you just stated it, Ryan, but I think that's an extremely good observation. And I guess it begins, you know, it seems to me there's been this pendulum of, you know, when video conferencing and working from home first came out, there was this big swing towards let's do everything at home. You know, we may not even have offices in the 21st century. You know, it's all going to be everybody a computer. I know for many businesses that swung the other way where they've said, we don't like all this interconnectedness. We need people IBM. to, you know, IBM's a good example of, you know, we, we want people there. This hasn't worked for us. But I think at a more global stage, you present real, there, there's this other barrier to yes. that in-person thing where it gets really hard to bring people together. And let me try to, to try to break it down a little bit better. I'm in the technology industry. Uh, and I, my past few clients have all been in the technology industry. So it's an area that I understand. And um, in the United States right now, we have, we're blessed with extremely low unemployment, right? Yeah. Uh, I think we're down at 4%, which is almost, in economics terms, that's almost everybody that wants to work has right. a job. Right. And so the technology industry is very competitive um, for people with very nuanced, unique sets of skills. And so companies like ours thrive and we need employees with that specific type of skill. And so it becomes a challenge. And so one of the ways we've solved that challenge is that our company has gone uh, the way of very flexible work arrangements, right? Mm -hmm. Come to the office, in, in DC especially, come to the office on days you need to come to the office. You, know, you don't have to be there nine to five, but also flexible working arrangements because in DC, uh, Metro, people, I like to call it the Silicon Valley of the East. We have a really <laughs> vibrant tech industry mm -hmm. here and um, it's very competitive for the tech labor. And so if we have someone in Denver, Colorado that has a set of skills and we really just need them in a computer, we're okay not having you come into the office and you're just working that. Of course, then as an employment lawyer, I would say you need the managers to then manage them very carefully so that they're actually doing the job you've asked them to do and uh, you know, complying with all of the company's um, various policies. Um, the other issue, of, of course, in addition to the flexible working environment is just, again, the use of the immigration programs that we do have in place. Yeah. Um, at the moment, we have a NAFTA uh, treaty that allows expedited immigration to the United States for certain technical jobs from Canada and Mexico. And of course, we have the what's been very popular in the tech industry, the H-1B visa. Yes. Um, so if I can't find someone in the United States with my specific set of skills, and I can find a foreign national that's very talented and has a set of skills, I can apply for one of these limited visas. And um, I know our industry has been find that very popular. Right. And, and I know that there's been a lot of talk about the H-1B visa and potential challenges to it. I mean, are you seeing an impact or worried about the impact of changes in that H-1B visa rule? I mean, are you still able to get people that way? Do you think that will continue? What's your crystal ball say there? Sure. My crystal ball says that the current administration will make some efforts to make change it. They recently suspended and put on a review part of the very popular program that allows uh, companies to pay a pretty hefty fee, but in the grand scheme of recruiting people, not hefty, about, I think it was $1,200, $1,600 mm -hmm. on top of the normal H-1B visa filing to expedite it. So this was very popular with a lot of companies in the tech industry, and they suspended that basically to make it harder, to make everybody wait in line, which is a very slow, it's a bureaucratic process, right, to wait for the talent that they need, and hope. I think the administration's hope may have been to discourage mm -hmm. uh, use of the H-1B program, which they view as um, sending labor overseas, bringing labor in when yeah. there might 
might be other qualified Americans to do that. But um, the premise of the H-1B program is that it needs to be a highly talented alien. It needs to be someone from another country that, that has a set of skills that you can't really find in the United States. And so it's been... Uh, companies have used that as a stopgap for some time, a labor stopgap, when, when you are in a competitive labor environment and you can't find someone that does this particular type of computer programming. But what I do think, to use the crystal ball and to answer your question, what I do think is that corporate America will resist these changes pretty heftily. I think the administration actually has gone back to that. Yeah. After a 30 or 60 day review, they've now announced that, okay, we're putting the program back the way it was. And I think that was through hefty resistance from the tech industry. Great. Because otherwise you're actually holding businesses being held back. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the argument that our industry has put forth is that you're inhibiting growth and you're inhibiting an, an immigration, right? Yeah. If I need a Canadian executive that has a certain level of experience in running computer games in Vancouver, right, and that's the best employee that I need, then that's, I think, you know, the and flexibility needs right And if you get, if you right get that front-end uh, technological experience where you need it, when you need it, that potentially then drives other, mm-hmm. jo- other American jobs. If you, if exactly. You wanna, so, you'd so I do think that we'll run up against a crunch because there's, a, I think, a 50,000 cap on the H-1 visa program per year. And at the same time, we have very low unemployment right now, which makes it very competitive for labor. So I think you'll see companies leveraging their overseas offices in areas where labor may be better. Uh, the labor market. So yeah. uh, I think you'll see that because I, I think we're running up against policy versus the labor market. Great. Well, that, I mean, I think that's a key point because obviously the competition for talent and getting people, particularly in tech industries like yours and a lot of our clients, mm-hmm. is a real pressing issue. And I think the intersection that we've talked about today about how to deal with the immigration issues, how to try to decide what labor policies you're going to have and the whole direct access versus remote is really important. So I thank you for thank you for sharing that. Um, and for our listeners, obviously many of you wear just labor and employment as one of the hats, but I think this is a good reminder of some of the factors you need to think about as you're working with your HR uh, folks to figure out what the company's legal options are uh, for employment. So I appreciate you sharing those, Ryan. No, thank you. I'm happy to Great. Thank you. Thanks. We were talking about the need to not only deal with the fires, but look ahead. Could you share with our listeners what you may see ahead in terms of changing technology and how in-house counsel may need to deal with those changes? No, absolutely. And uh, the kickoff plenary session for the ACC was an excellent speaker uh, who spoke about blockchain technology. And if I could say, you know, if, if like Vanderbilt, who sold all of his uh, ships in, in a most successful shipping industry and invest in the railroad when rest railroad was new, you know, or our internet pioneers when the internet was new. I believe we're at a similar point now with blockchain technology. I think most people have heard about Bitcoin, but it's the underlying technology that I think will be revolutionary to all of our businesses. Sometimes you have a um, changes in your individual industry, right? You know, the advent of new technology that disrupts you as a business or you as, as an industry. But I think about every 20 years or so, it seems that we have just some threshold technological change that throttles everybody's industries and requires us to shift our paradigm thought to a new way of doing business. 20 years ago, it was the internet. And 20 years before that, it was the personal computer, uh, roughly. And I think it, now it's going to be the blockchain technology, which will enable a number of issues, uh, wonderful things, you know. But Right now, we're at the point where it's novel and mm. people don't understand it and people don't trust it. And it reminds me of, you know, I, I was 
in the first uh, online auction for the 1996 Olympics. And yeah, this is well before eBay. And my mother, uh, who I was encouraged buying something on this website, was paranoid about putting her credit card online. You know, why would you do this? What is this internet thing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, why are we doing it? At the time, it was novel. You could send messages kind of back and forth, but business hadn't really adopted it yet. People were scared to use uh, that as a method of transaction. You know, and in the ensuing years, we now have e-commerce and nobody thinks about it, right? We have all of our cards store everywhere else. Blockchain technology is at that point where we were in 1996 with the internet. Nobody really knows it. It has a few applications, but I think that it will be deployed widely and I think it will disrupt so many businesses in pretty much every industry as we, we adopt it. So uh, to, to use a Game of Thrones reference, winter is coming. <laughs> uh, and so wow. that's, that's what I stay awake thinking about is how, we, how these dis potentially disruptive technologies can be capitalized on from a business perspective instead of um, being game over for your company. Yeah, gotcha. And a, really a challenge both for the individual companies, but I think the legal industry mm -hmm. too has got to think about what blockchain technology may mean for some of the work we do. And so I do, I think it presents some interesting challenges. It, it just as, as AI does, you know, if a contract is being made by a bot or an AI uh, or the smart blockchain technology, it is a real contract. Is yeah. there a meeting of the minds? Uh, uh, these are interesting questions that our courts are grappling with now and uh, will be grappling with in the future. And so as companies sort of, you know, we've had this outsourcing to cheaper labor parts of the world, right, for a lot of customer service and a lot of issues. But now we're going to see this, I think, wave of outsourcing of labor to automated bots. And we already see this, but I think that's going to continue in lieu of outsourcing. So I think a lot of these outsourced jobs will be eliminated and replaced with automated technology. And the question is, um, what downsides, uh, from a lawyer's perspective, how do we avoid the shoals and the downsides of these new emerging technologies while capitalizing on the efficiencies and the, the good things that they bring our companies? No, I think that's a great point, and uh, hopefully stay tuned, listeners stay tuned, because I, I'm hoping to do something more on blockchain in future podcasts as we come to better understand the nature of the technology um, and how it is probably changing the world next time around. That's terrific. Thank you so much for listening, Ryan and, and Robert. Thank you both for being here. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. If you haven't already, be sure to check out our other episodes from the ACC Annual Conference, which will be rolling out every two weeks. You can download or stream those and other past episodes or subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud, or visit our website at womblebonddickinson.com forward slash US forward slash podcast. As always, I welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions for future episodes. This has been In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station.